welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. There we are. Hi, friends. How's everybody doing? Everybody okay? Um, FYI, if you're feeling a little crowded, we do have some spots in the balcony, which are my favorite seats in the house. I'm just saying. Um, here's a couple of things. If you like to knit, um, there's a knitting, couple of knitting projects over there. We knit things, and then as they're done, we give them away to people who might need them or want them or use them. And there's Bibles back here in the middle. So if you need a Bible, which uh, I would recommend that you have, we will, things will be on the screen behind me, but I always like to have something in my hand. That's personal. Um, so if you don't, don't feel bad. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. That's not what I'm here for. Um, but my name's Micah, and I'm really glad you're here. Um, we are in week three of a series called All of the Above, where we're studying the book of Esther. And uh, so I'll invite you, if you would, turn to Esther chapter one. And uh, we're going to start there. Um, just by way of review, if you missed the last couple weeks, last week we had a little something called Everybody Sunday where our kids were in the gathering with us, which was very fun. There may have been a trust fall off a ladder. Uh, that was pretty cool. But we talked about community and needing each other and trusting each other. Uh, the week before that we talked about um, really what does it mean to, uh, what informs our perception of beauty and what speaks into that, and, and really how do we treat one another as, as men and women uh, as it relates to the church. Uh, as you read Esther chapter 1, there's an interesting scene between a husband and wife, king and queen, and that sort of sent us down that trail. So this week is entitled, To Drink or Not to Drink, which I think will become pretty obvious as we read the text. So if you would, Esther chapter 1, and I'll have you just stand if you can, uh, and we'll read from uh, just the, the first part of chapter 1. So it says this, This happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles uh, uh, and officials. The military leaders of Persia, Media, and the princes and the nobles of, of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, these guys knew how to whoop it up. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and splendor and the glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace uh, for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings, white and blue linen, fastened with cords of linen and purple material to silver rings on, on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry. Does anyone know what that is? Phil, our resident potter, do you know what that is? Uh, it's not pretty okay. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that next week. Pour free. Uh, marble, mother of pearl. I know what that is. That's, uh, they lay that inlay in guitars. Anyhow, other costly stones. Wine. This is, our, this is what we're getting to here. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all of the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Pray with me if you would. God, we want to thank you for this day, for... Uh, for your word, which we believe um, is special and has some unique character in which you reveal yourself to us. So God, as we gather and as we study, as, we, uh, as we're with one another, we invite your spirit here. We recognize that 
this is not the pinnacle of this morning, that what I have to say or what I'm about to do is not why everybody came, but we came for you. We came for each other. We came because we, uh, we need something beyond ourselves. Uh, for some of us, that's you, uh, whether we know it or not. For others, it's uh, just hugs and smiles and people who know our names. So God, we've asked that you'd be present as we gather, that you would speak to us, that you would um, be very present to each of us in, a, in an individual and unique way, we ask. In your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. You can have a seat if you would. So here's the thing, gang. Persia, the, the kingdom of Persia, uh, is known in history. If you go back, you can read non-biblical or extra-biblical sources, often Greek uh, history, and they will tell you the, the account of these massive parties that the Persians would throw. For uh, actually, and, and while Esther is quite grandiose and extravagant and um, over the top, uh, this 180-day kind of party is actually not... Um, it's not something that is foreign to the landscape of ancient Persia. So they would throw these massive parties, and as the text says, um, the best wine is, is available to anyone for as, as much as they like or as little as they like. Usually, when they would get together in these kinds of parties, there was a rule that whenever the king drank, it was kind of like a frat party. Whenever the king drank, you all drank as well, and so everybody just got bombed. Um, because the king would drink quite a bit. But in this particular party, the king says, listen, you can drink as much as you like or as little as you like. The wine is free, the, the whatever else, uh, it's flowing, and you can have it. Um, so this is what I want to hone in on this morning. Now, a couple of things, uh, interpretive keys as we jump into this, we've, and this is review, but important that we uh, start here, I think. Number one, we don't want to make Esther answer questions that Esther doesn't intend to answer. There are certain books in the Bible that set out to do something, and oftentimes as readers who live on this side of 2,000 years of history, we come to the text and we have certain preconceived ideas, or we, we ask the text questions that really it never intended to answer. Like, historical questions are not very good when you come to Esther, because more often, or mo more likely than not, Esther is not a historical account of an event. Rather, this is a classic Jewish wisdom book, where um, it's not setting out to tell us uh, accurate details about history. So we don't want to ask questions that Esther doesn't intend to ask. Secondly, we want to make sure, I want to make sure that we challenge our modern notion that historical equals true, right? So if I've pulled the carpet out from under you, if you weren't here the last couple weeks, and you're like, what in the heck, Esther's not true? Is that what you're saying? Like, what is this going to do? If that's how you feel, I want to make sure that we understand that historical doesn't equal true, Okay. Data and scientific data or scientific evidence doesn't equal true all the time. Sometimes it does, but just because something's not historically accurate, like maybe Esther didn't actually become the queen of Persia, that doesn't mean it's less true. Okay? It's a different kind of book. It's setting out to do something different than tell us historical data. The books of the Bible do this all the time. Genesis is one of them. It's not a historical data. Okay? It's a polemic against ancient Near Eastern uh, creation accounts, of which there are many. Uh, Revelation is not supposed to tell you exactly what heaven will be like. Okay? I'm not going to keep going down that track because I don't want to you know, upset you all. Uh, suffice it to say, there may not actually be streets of gold. Okay? I know, I know, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. It's an apocalyptic book. It's, it's using imagery and all kinds of things to tell you this experience that John is having. Be that as it may, Esther is the same way, okay? It's not setting out to answer those kinds of things. So historical doesn't always equal true. 
Truth is something that's bigger than that, and it can be true even if it's not historical. Uh, Esther is, in, in, in Esther, everything's bigger, right? So everything is, is larger than life. Each of the characters act uh, larger and bigger than maybe they would normally, and, and this is to prove a point. It's kind of like a, a satire or a farcical sort of um, account of something where they'll even use... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, cultural things and then make them bigger or, or exaggerate them. There it is. Exaggerate them for a point. And lastly, a couple of interpretive keys. Think in terms of lessons and themes. So what we're going to do today is look at this particular section. And, and I think one of the, the subtexts or, or pieces that rises to the surface is this issue of alcohol. So think in terms of lessons and themes. So as we approach this text this morning... I think it's, it's obvious to say that in the Old Testament context and culture, wine and drinking was of no consequence. It was something that was very, very normal. Uh, if you move on into the New Testament in the time of Jesus and the writings of Paul, I think you could make it also make a case that wine and drinking was of no consequence. It was just part of daily life in the ancient Near East. A lot of times for health reasons, because if it was alcoholic, it wouldn't rot or it wouldn't, from, it wouldn't uh, grow things, right? Now, I don't think you have to go very far... You don't have to go very far in religious communities to find people that would say, because you are a part of this religious community, or because you're a part of this particular denomination, or because you're, you follow Jesus, you are forbidden to drink alcohol. I'm wondering, just by show of hands, just a straw poll here this morning, if you know someone who grew up in this kind of setting, if, you, if you've been to a church or you were a part of a family or a church where f- the, the consumption of alcohol was forbidden because of religious reasons, just go ahead and raise your hand. Keep it up. Just out of curiosity. Okay? Maybe a little over half of the people in this room. So you don't have to go very far. In fact, you don't have to go very far from, from Awaken, uh, maybe one step removed, to find people who would say that you should not consume alcohol because you're a Christian. I would say that probably two of the three Christian colleges that are represented here this morning at Awaken would say you shouldn't drink alcohol. Some of the students down here are laughing. <laughs> right? Even if you're of age, even if you're off campus, you sign something that says as long as you go here, you don't drink. Now, friends and family members, the book of Esther presents a peop- uh, presents. God's people, right, the the Jewish people in a story in which the consumption of alcohol in massive quantities um, happens. And I don't think we have to do too much hermeneutical gymnastics to to put the Jewish people, God's people, participating in festivities such as this. Uh, If you look at the Old Testament, um, there there often is in, in different festivals... Uh, in parts of the Jewish community and, 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 the, and the, the religious festivals that they were commanded. So actually, Torah, God's scripture, the word of God, commands that the, the people of God, when they're participating in these festivals, participate in the drinking of wine. Uh, if you go to the New Testament, Jesus, for crying out loud, his first miracle is what? This isn't a trick question, and you should be able to get this. Uh, turning water into wine, right? So at the, the wedding in Cana of Galilee, Jesus keeps the party going by producing water from, or wine from water. And in fact, the, the gospel writers go on to say, not only was it just wine, it was like the best wine. Because typically in this day and age, you would start the party with the good stuff. And then when everybody had a little buzz going, you'd bring out the bad stuff because nobody knew the difference anymore because they were all a little, you know, woo, hey, uh, taste tastes better. Scotch, it tastes better after the fourth glass, right? That's what I've heard. 
That's what I've heard. So Jesus not only turns water into wine, but he makes the good stuff, and he keeps the party going. Um, Paul, in, in the epistles, he tells Timothy to drink a glass of wine for issues that, that he may have had with, at least what we think, uh, stomach issues. Um, in the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 11, you know, the classic passage that's quoted about communion, you know, you shouldn't take communion unless you've confessed all your sin and you have no wrongs between you and another brother. Paul, what Paul is actually addressing here is that the Corinthians had all kinds of wine and, and food at their little gatherings that the, the church would gather. And what they were doing was actually marginalizing the poor people or those who had less and giving them the, 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 um, the, the bad food or not letting them into the inner, the inner little gathering area where the good food and the good wine was. And they were getting drunk while they were doing it. And Paul's like, listen, this is absolutely against what the, the communion table is all about. But there's wine there. There's, there's consumption there. The psalmist says he makes grass grow for the cattle, plants for the cattle, bringing, or for, for people to cultivate, bringing food forth from the earth. Wine that gladdens the human heart, oil that makes their faces shine. Friends, let me just say this. Only a really confused fundamentalist can actually, actually argue from the scriptures that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't drink. That's what I would contend. Because if you're honest about the text, if you're honest about the scriptures, it's everywhere. It's all over the place. And you have to do some serious maneuvering to make it say that because you follow Jesus, you shouldn't drink. Now, here's what I want to do today. Esther, we enter the story, massive party, 180 days, wine flowing like honey, uh, wine flowing like, you know, salmon of Capistrano or flocking, the whole deal. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. So the question is, to drink or not to drink, to drink or not to drink, is the question. Dickens got it wrong. It was Dickens, right? Really? Oh, I'm thinking of the, uh, uh, no, I'm thinking of something else. I'll get back to you. Oh, that was to be or not to be. Uh, no, I'm thinking of, there's another, there's a Dickens one. I'll, I'll, I'll. Porphyry, whatever that other word was, and that quote. I'll come back to you on that one. But to drink or not to drink, and my answer to the question is yes. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're new to Awaken, welcome. Glad you're here. You came in, you came on a good week. Yeah. Did you Google that? Uh, awesome. Way to go, Jay. <laughs> no, but my friend did. <laughs> That's awesome. Not used, not used in pottery, friends. We're not talking about pot here. We're talking about alcohol. <laughs> to drink or not to drink? Yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is Paul, and he writes to a church in Corinth. And these particular people, they were a small church, uh, probably... Scholars would say maybe about this size. And they had some specific questions for Paul. And so they wrote to him and they asked him particular questions about this, that, or the other thing. So they're gathering, they're a church, they're doing life together. And a, a few things come up in their midst that were based in culture, that were rooted in cultural contexts. And in chapter 7 and chapters 8, Paul actually addresses them. He starts chapter 7 by saying, Now, for the matters you wrote about... And then he starts and he talks about 
um, marriage and food, food sacrifice to idols to be more specific. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 8, he says this. Now, about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, from whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, though, or through him, all things came, and through him, whom we live. Sounds like Colossians. But not everyone knows this. Some people are so, still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that, you that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ and therefore... If what I, what, I, what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. The question remains, we're looking at a passage of scripture that deals with meat sacrificed to idols. What does this have to do with Esther and alcohol, you might ask? I would submit to you this. The issue that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is a similar issue that alcohol is for us in that it's rooted in context, it's rooted in culture, it comes up because of where we live, and it also is what I would, uh, would fall into the category of a word that we've discussed before, and it's called this, it's on the screen behind me. Adiaphoron is Greek, and it means indifferent things. It was actually a stoic concept, and it had this idea that uh, it indicated something that was outside of moral law. So you were neither mandated, you were neither uh, bound by it, nor were you, uh, nor was it, uh, you were forbidden. Morally, it was neutral. It didn't matter. Christians then took this word and they kind of adopted it and sort of, you know, stirred it up into the religious community or the, the religious pot. And it, and it referred to matters not regarded as essential to faith. Nevertheless, permissible for Christians or allowed in the church. So here's what Paul's doing. He's taking an issue that's culturally bound, eating food sacrificed to idols. You live in the ancient Near East, there's a plethora, there's a pantheon of gods and goddesses and temples where they would sacrifice animals, and then the people of that temple or that particular cult would eat the meat that was sacrificed to the idol as part of their worship to that particular god. So now you have people coming out of that context, and they're coming to know Jesus. They're saying yes to Jesus as, as, as the person who was rose, you know, that, that laid death in his grave, and they're saying yes to him. And so now there's this conscience thing. There's like, well, sh can I eat this? Because this meat was sacrificed. Because let's be honest, meat in the first century, this isn't something that you, that, that you just go to the grocery store and buy. This has to do with, oh, holy cats, my goodness gracious. I'm getting all bound. I'm getting all... Okay. Hi. <laughs> 
grab this little mug here. So these people, they would, meat, meat's not something you'd come by on a daily basis. And so if, if you could eat it, whew, if, you, if you could get your hands on it, you would eat it because it's not something that everybody could afford. So now these Christians are like, well, what should I do? So this is a culturally bound thing. Paul basically says, listen, you're free to do it. doesn't matter. It's adiaphora. I would submit to you that alcohol, in our context and culture, falls under the same category, adiaphora. It's neither spiritually uh, mandated nor forbidden. Let's just walk through the text as far as what Paul's doing here in 1 Corinthians 8, and then I want to translate it to our context, all right? So what he does to start with is he, he, he makes a case that you're free to eat this. In verse 8, he says, listen, it's, it's spiritually, it has no, neither positive nor negative. It's neutral. If you would like to eat meat sacrificed to idols and you can do it with a, with a clear conscience, then belly up to the bar and have a piece of steak. It doesn't matter. The meat in and of itself does not have any spiritual value. Then he goes on and he gives a couple of reasons why you should voluntarily abstain. Number one would be because it's morally neutral. Because it's morally neutral, because it has no spiritual benefit if you do it or you don't, if you have to voluntarily abstain, then do so. Because you're not missing out on anything that's spiritually beneficial to you. Does that make sense? Then he goes on and his second reason is, if you, 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 you can't flaunt your freedom in the face of someone whose conscience is weak. And he uses this term weak, and of course for us it's like, you know, hey, bump you up, strong guy, weak guy is the guy that gets beat up on the playground. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about if there's somebody that's come... If their story, if their, their journey is connected to something that, that causes this particular thing, meat sacrificed to idols, to be an issue that causes them to stumble, then he considers them weak, or he uses the word weak. So it's not about strength per se, it's about where you've come from and what particular instances and, and uh, actual things have happened in your past that would connect you or, or, or part of your story that make eat make eating meat sacrificed to idols an issue. So Paul says, you can't flaunt your freedom. You're free in Christ. If you want to eat it, you can. It doesn't matter. But when you flaunt your freedom in the face of someone who struggles with that, it's not cool. Totally not cool. He goes further, and then he says, the third, the third thing he, or reason he gives why you should voluntarily abstain is he makes it very clear in verse 12 to avoid sinning against Christ. He basically says, if you do this, you're free to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And if you do this, and someone in your midst, someone in the community, someone a part of this community struggles in, because of that, or, or eats the meat sacrificed to idols, and sins in doing so because it's a conscience issue, Paul makes this a little bit more clear in Romans 14. Actually, why don't you turn there, if you would, just a couple of chapters back. Chapter 14, verse 23. 22, he says, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God, right? Food sacrifice to idols again. It's an issue of conscience. Whatever you believe, keep it between you and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but the man who has doubt when he eats is condemned if he eats because eating, his eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So back to 1 Corinthians, if you 
you're free to eat, but if somebody in your midst, you cause them to eat and they do so with doubt, Paul says essentially everything that's, that, that you don't do with confidence that it's coming from God, it's a gift from God and you can receive it with gratitude, but you're doing so in doubt and should I do this or should I do this, shouldn't do it. Matthew, Jesus uh, in Matthew 10 and 25 makes it very clear that when you sin against a brother or a sister, you sin against him. So what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians is, don't flaunt it. And, when, and if you do and someone, you cause somebody to sin, this is a serious deal. Because when, someone, when you cause someone to sin, it's as if you're, you're doing this to me. Matthew 25. So, this is what Paul's talking about as far as food sacrifice to idols. Let's translate it to alcohol. Two things that are absolutely critical that we get on this particular issue. The first is this. So if I'm going to hang this thing on anything, I want you to get these two things. Number one, that which binds us, requires us, or forbids us biblically. That which binds us, requires us, mandates us, forbids us, as far as the scripture is concerned. As people who follow Jesus, the scriptures are our rule for life. This is, this is what we have, that in the spirit at work among us. This is what we have to guide our life together. And therefore, this is the place that we start and return to when discerning how to live in this world as we follow Jesus. Therefore, we can bind one another or we can forbid one another. We can mandate one another to do certain things and live a certain way because the scriptures do so. Let me give you a couple of examples or to say it differently. I can hold you accountable as a person who follows Jesus to not cheat on your spouse, to not abuse your children, to not be mastered or addicted by a substance or a behavior that controls you. Why? Because the scripture forbids or mandates those lifestyles or activities. So as a member of the body of Christ, as a church, we can bind one another I can hold you accountable, and you can and should hold me accountable to certain things. Why? Because the scriptures do so. Now, the tricky part, and this is where the whole thing, the whole conversation about alcohol lies, the difference, I would say, is we can hold each other accountable, we can bind one another to things that the scripture says, but we cannot and must not bind and hold one, or one another accountable to, to matters that are matters of conscience. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 8, and I would submit to you we're dealing with as it relates to alcohol. You're free. You're free in Christ. So when there's something that isn't clear in Scripture that is mandated or forbidden for those who follow Jesus, you're free to choose whatever you want to do as it relates to your conscience. So what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 8, it's a matter of conscience, and conscience is not necessarily binding for the community. So you're free to abstain, you're free to participate based on conscience. You're free to drink alcohol. It's morally, spiritually neutral. If you choose to consume alcohol in Christ, you're free to do that. You're not cooler you're not more holy, you're not more spiritually better off if you choose to. If you choose to abstain from drinking alcohol in Christ, you're free to do that. And there may be many reasons why you might. 
there's no spiritual or moral benefit to abstain so you're not spiritually better than, you're not more holy than, you're not higher up than because you choose to abstain. Spiritually neutral. Are there any stipulations that the scriptures make as it relates to alcohol? I would argue yes. I'll highlight a few of them. Number one, drinking to drunkenness is not acceptable behavior for people who follow Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Paul, in Romans, Galatians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Peter, includes drunkenness in a list of things that are not Spirit-led behavior. So drinking to drunkenness is not something that you should do if you follow Jesus. If you choose to consume, if you choose to participate, if you choose to have a beer or have a glass of wine or drink a scotch, whatever, know your limit. For me, it's two. If you're out with me, you'll probably never see me drink more than two beers. And if I'm driving, it's probably going to be one. Because for me, I know that when I drink more than two beers, I say dumb things, and I do dumb things, and I say things that I regret. So for me, that's my limit. It's an issue of conscience, and so I've decided, for me, I would encourage you to figure out what that is, if you choose to, to participate. Paul goes on, or... or, or in Romans 13, if there's another mandate, it's uh, obey the law. If you're not 21, you shouldn't drink. Romans 13 says, uh, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So if you're under 21, you shouldn't drink, period, end. Lastly, and this is, this is one that I think is the most important, and this is really the heart of what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14, and other places. Relationship and community always trumps personal freedom. Relationship and community always, 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 always trumps personal freedom. This is why Paul gets so bent out of shape in 1 Corinthians 11. It's not that these people aren't free to participate in the things they're doing, but they're doing it at the sacrifice and at the behest of community. And because of that, they're actually undercutting with the nature of the Lord's table which is about community, which is about us. So Paul says, you're free to do these things, but if you have to choose between your personal freedom and community, you always choose community because following Jesus is about us. It's not about you. Community is always valued higher than individuality because this thing is about us. To be a part of the community, the people of God, is about a corporate thing first and foremost. couple of things as we close, I would say. Questions that we can ask. As you, alcohol is one particular thing, but let's just throw a couple of others on the table. Smoking, tattoos, uh, rated R movies. These are all things that often among legalistic religious communities are like, no, 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 no. Scripture's not clear on those things, friends. It's just not. So you're free to choose because, I'm going to get to that. How do you approach these things? How do, you, how do you wrestle with these things? Because the easy way, the, 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 the way that's, that's uh, you know, free from conversation and dialogue is just to say, no, don't do that. You can't do that. That's against the rules. You're forbidden to do that. Because if you follow Jesus, it's these rules and these things. And that way, you're in or you're out. And everything's clear and it's cut and it's dry and it's easy. 
The more difficult way, which I'm challenging this community to participate in, is to think and to wrestle with it, right? Israel, the people of God, the, actual, the name Israel. Jacob, uh, is, Jacob is, is, wrestles with God and his name is changed to Israel. One who wrestles with God and overcomes. So the very nature of the people of God when they began was to wrestle with. To, to... So, how do you move forward? What are, here's a couple of thoughts as we close. I would say questions you can ask uh, as we interpret things in Scripture and in culture as we seek to follow Jesus. What does the Bible say? It's where we have to start. What does the Scripture say? There are certain things that the Scripture says you should do and you shouldn't do. What are those things? And this gets a little, you know, a little dicey because some people would say the scripture says this and others would say it doesn't and that's a matter of interpretation and then, okay, let's start talking. Yes, I, I recognize that. But that's where we have to start. What does, the scripture, what does the scripture say? Second, what does your conscience say? On things that are adiaphora, things that are not black and white in scripture, what does your conscience tell you? If you come from a background that had alcohol abuse in it from generations upon generations upon generations, it's probably not a good idea for you to just jump in, right? You might want to do so with a little bit of caution, with a few safeguards set up, with a few people that you uh, trust and, and, and live close to keeping tabs on you because they love you. If you've had issues with alcohol in the past, you probably shouldn't participate. What does your conscience say? And then lastly, what does the community to which I'm responsible require of me? And that's the trump card, as far as I'm concerned. So if you have a friend who, let's say in Paul's case, 1 Corinthians 8, you had somebody, you're inviting some people over for dinner. They just came from, uh, they were a part of a cult who sacrificed meat to idols and then ate those things. You invite them over. What should you probably not serve? Meat sacrificed to idols, right? And if you do serve meat, make it very clear that this is something that you raised yourself. It's organic. It's free range, man. <laughs> right? Because you want to differentiate between what they've come from and possibly causing consternation and, and conscience issues for them. So what does the community that you're a part of require of you? And in closing, I would say this. Colossians chapter 2, Paul does this brilliant thing where he basically says legalism doesn't work. He says... Legalism, rules and regulations set by religious communities, whether they're Christian or not, it doesn't work. It's not worth it. I used to be a youth pastor long, long, long ago, many moons ago. Okay, probably just like five years ago. And I really struggled with telling kids don't drink. Because that's what I should say as your youth pastor because that's what your parents would want me to say. Because the church that I grew up in didn't really allow, it didn't really give a good answer, right? Don't have sex, don't drink, don't do this, don't do drugs, don't do that. Why? Because you shouldn't, because you're a Christian. That's really, that was the explanation I got. And quite frankly, I think we do people a disservice when we tell them that. When there are things that are not biblically mandated or scripturally forbidden, and we tell them, because it's 
our religious communities, whatever, don't do this, don't do that, and we just make it black and white when it's not black and white, we do people a disservice, and we, and, and we actually rob them the opportunity to think critically about something and actually work with the Spirit of God and work with the community around them to follow Jesus. Instead, it's just about rules and regulations, and if you do this, you're in, and if you don't do that, you're out. That's, fair. That's why Jesus hated the Pharisees for crying out loud. They made all these rules, and they said, if you follow these rules, there's hundreds of them, you're in, and if you don't, you're out. And Jesus had no time for these people. He got massively upset with these folks. So the kind of community that we're trying to cultivate at Awaken is one that is honest about the scriptures, but one that also says, listen, you're going to have to work this out. You're going to have to think about it. Because biblically, it doesn't matter if you want to have a beer or if you don't. Jesus doesn't care as far as your religiosity goes, as far as your spiritual stand, as far as your holiness goes. He cares in one sense and doesn't in another. So the kind of community that I'm inviting you into is one that allows for grace and space as we wrestle through things that are adiaphora, things that are not black and white in scripture, things that are, we're free to do. Because this, this is where community happens. Around this table and at this conversation, I have to know you. And I have to know your story in order for me to be respectful, in order for me to do this biblically, in order for me to follow Jesus. I have to know you. You have to know me. And then we make decisions based on how we know each other and how we love each other and how we respect each other. Isn't, this a, isn't that a better way than black and white rules and regulations? Do this, don't do that. If, you're, if you do, you're in. If you don't, you're out. I think for many of you, I'm, and I, I know some of your stories, I've, I've spoken with you and I've sat across coffee tables and heard ways in which you've been beat up by previous religious communities that did that, that said, it's black and white. There's no room for negotiation here. And if you do this, you're in. And if you don't do it, you're out. And I just want to, on behalf of the, the hundreds and thousands of people who've tried to faithfully follow Jesus before us, apologize. Because oftentimes those places represented Jesus to you. And that's not gospel law and it's death it's not life and if I know Jesus at all he offers life not rules and regulations so friends I want to encourage you yeah today is about alcohol in one sense it's about should I consume to drink or not to drink but on a, on a larger level it's about how do we do community. It's about how do we do f relationship and family. It's about how do we do church. How do we become a people of God in the world that manifests the grace and resurrection power of Jesus. And it's by taking steps deeper and deeper into relationship and community. Wrestling with these things and knowing each other's stories. 
and respecting one another's issues when it comes to conscience. And I can't do that unless I know you. And you can't do that unless you know me. Well, you have an unfair advantage because I tell you a lot about me when I'm up here every week. But that's what we want to invite you into. That's the kind of community that we're trying to cultivate. So, to drink or not to drink? Yes. I'm done. <laughs> Sorry about that awkward transition, Ben. It's all good. <laughs> Better get fast. Um, we're going to sing a song called Lord, You Have My Heart. And you guys can just stay seated and just reflect, but... Uh, the reason I picked this song is it's got that line in there. It says, uh, Lord, you have my heart, and I will search for yours. And I think that's what this is about, is just being open to the Spirit, just op- open to his leading as we navigate through all these things. And as we navigate together as a community, it's about where's the heart of God? Where is he leading you? What is he asking you to do? And it may be different one day than the next, and uh, we just have to be open to that. So. Praise you, Lord. 
Thank you.